Our Father, as we search through the Word of God, we are constantly reminded of your grace, your mercy, your long-suffering, your patience. And Father, when we're honest with ourselves and before you, we recognize that we are in need of all of those attributes being displayed towards us each and every day. Father, I pray that we will be able to lay aside the burdens of our heart right now and to listen to what you might say to us, and that in turn you will help us to see that you are the burden bearer, that you are the one who will carry our burdens, that you are the one who hears our prayer. You're the one who brings transformation to our lives and works in the hearts and lives of those for whom we pray. Father, I ask you to glorify yourself today. Even as you promised to be in our midst, we know you're here today, and you've done a great work even this past week, and we have some wonderful answers to prayer that we'll be talking about later on. And Father, we just thank you for what you will do this morning, for the blessing that you will pour about upon us here this morning. And we submit to you and trust you to bless throughout this complex today and throughout the city of Reading and wherever your word is being proclaimed. In Jesus' name, amen. Judges chapter 5. Judges chapter 5. Let me read the first 11 verses. Then Deborah and Barak, the son of Abinoam, sang on that day, saying, that the leaders led in Israel, that the people volunteered, bless the Lord. Hear, O kings, give ear, O rulers, I, to the Lord I will sing. I will sing praise to the Lord, the God of Israel. Lord, when thou didst go out from Seir, when thou didst march from the field of Edom, the earth quaked, the heavens also dripped, even the clouds dripped water. The mountains quaked at the presence of the Lord, this Sinai at the presence of the Lord, the God of Israel. In the days of Shamgar, the son of Anath, in the days of Jael, the highways were deserted and the travelers went by roundabout ways. The peasantry ceased, they ceased in Israel, until I, Deborah, arose, until I arose a mother in Israel. New gods were chosen. Then war was in the gates. Not a shield or a spear was seen among 40,000 in Israel. My heart goes out to the commanders of Israel, the volunteers among the people, bless the Lord. You who ride on white donkeys, you who sit on rich carpets, and you who travel the road, sing at the sound of those who divide flocks among the watering places. There they shall recount the righteous deeds of the Lord, the righteous deeds for his peasantry in Israel. Then the people of the Lord went down to the gates. This, of course, is poetry. This is a song, or as we think in biblical terms, it's a psalm. It's the psalm of Deborah and Barak. I, I doubt that it was written by them together. It, it most likely was written by Deborah. But the passage clearly teaches us that they sang or they chanted this song or this psalm together before the Lord in honor of his name and before the people of Israel. They probably taught the psalm to the people that they too could echo the words of praise to God. It's obviously and clearly throughout its full extent a psalm of praise of what God has done for his people for the victory that he gave them over their Canaanite oppressors. And that, of course, was the big issue with them at the moment. 
it's important as we read a passage like this that we recognize that it is not historical narrative. And, and what it says, it, it says in words of, of poetry, and I don't know how many of you read very many poems, but if, if you read poems and, and poetry and, and even some of the great poems, you realize that as you read down, it's the expression of, uh, of a heart that's in a particular position at the time. And it, it isn't necessarily saying anything that seems even to be logical. But as you move through this particular poem, we discover that some important things are said. When it talks about, uh, in, in verse 6 through 9 or so, it's actually telling us that in the days of Shamgar, and then in the current days, the days of jail, which is the time we're talking about at the moment here, how bad were the conditions under the Canaanites? Well, they were so bad that the highways were deserted. And the travelers, if they wanted to travel, they had to find some back road through the brush to travel to keep from being oppressed by the Canaanites. And war was in the gates, we're told in, in verse 8. But not a shield or a spear was found amongst 40,000 in Israel. Now, again, it's poetry. But the idea is that Israel was not able to deal with their oppressors. They didn't have the military might to deal with their oppressors. And therefore, they were subject to the Canaanite power. We've already spent some time with verses 12 through 23 of this passage, so I won't read them again because we did so last week. And what, what that passage basically tells us is, who helped in the victory that God gave Israel against the Canaanites there at Mount Tabor? Who came alongside? Who joined forces with Zebulon and Issachar and Naphtali, and who stood back and, and well, ugh, I don't know whether we should help or not, or who even refu refused to help. This is all given to us in here. And what details we might have of how the victory came about is it alluded to in this poetry. A great storm came, and this great storm was opposed to the Canaanites and favorable to the Israel, as only God could make a storm to be, and it helped to break down their chariot forces. Chariot forces are great, in open, flat land, that is hard. <laughs> but as soon as you make the, flan, uh, the land mountainous or rocky or you fill it full of mud, chariots are useless. And as that's exactly what happened here. Israel couldn't fight against chariots. As I mentioned to you before, chariots were the tanks of that day. And the, and the Canaanites had 900 of them. Israel had zero, not a one. Now, do they have some after this victory? I don't know. You know, do they requisition some of these broken down or stuck in the mud chariots? Maybe. I don't know. It, it, it doesn't say. It doesn't sound like it as we move into the next chapter and find Israel again oppressed by another people. It sounds like they must have just used them for, you know, something else besides chariots. Well, let's read on in verse 19. I'm sorry, verse 24. Most blessed of women is Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite. Most blessed is she of women in the tent. He asked for water, and she gave him milk. In a magnificent bowl, she brought him curds. She stretched out her hand for the tent peg, her right hand for the workman's hammer. Then she struck Sisera, she smashed his head, she shattered and pierced his temple. Between her feet he bowed, he fell, he lay. Between her feet he bowed, he fell. Where he bowed, there he fell dead. Not all poetry is, of course, um, gentle. If you've ever listened or, or read the poetry, the, the poem written by Lord Byron, 
uh, having to do with the uh, destruction of Sennacherib. Uh, you read, you li read through that poem and you find, of course, a great deal of tragedy in the lives of the, uh, of the Assyrians. What we have here, of course, is a poetic tribute to a woman who would become uh, a lauded individual in the history of Israel. She is called in this passage, most blessed of women. What is interesting to note is she was a non-Israelite. She is a non-Israelite. And she will be noted for her valor against the one who perpetrated evil on Israel. Jael would never have otherwise been heard of, undoubtedly. Without this event, who would have ever known she even existed? God, but we certainly wouldn't. One of the tragedies of history, and, and maybe it's not a serious tragedy, <laughs> because there's plenty to learn in history as it is, is the vast majority of people who have ever walked in this planet are a total cipher in history. Their names are unknown. Even what they did is unknown because nobody ever recorded it. Almost all historians have been either people of the priesthood or people of wealth and thus know how to read and write, and they could care less about the peasantry. And so the peasants have just lived as a nameless mass for thousands of years of history, and we know nothing about them individually. Corporately, we know some general ideas, but, but nothing individually. That's why some people say, why is it when we study history, all we talk about is king this and queen that? Well, it's because the record of the king and the queen has been written. The record of John Doe Peasant and his wife Jane have not been, has not been written. And, and therefore, we don't know it. Jael would have been a person whose history, whose life would have passed with nobody knowing about her historically except God alone. But before, because of this event, she becomes an honored woman. She receives honor and praise because she, I, I say unhesitatingly, of course I can't say that it was unhesitatingly, really. It could have been very hesitatingly. I, I think it would have been for almost anyone. But she did the will of God here. She did what was right. She did what was just. Verse 27 of this particular passage emphasizes how greatly humiliated will be the enemies of God. This is just an example of humiliation of a single person. But the humiliation of the evil, of perpetrators and evil, of evil in this world will continue down through time, even as the scripture teaches us, the, the proud God resists, the proud will fall. And, and you just think of the tragedy of someone like Adolf Hitler, whose, whose life ended so tragically in a bunker deep below Berlin with all of his thousand-year right going up in flames all around him. So it was for Sisera. The, the contrast in this passage is very stark. An ordinary woman is praised and honored before God and the whole people of Israel because... She acted justly. She did the will of God. While a mighty man, whose name was known by everybody in that whole area, the Canaanites, the Israelites, and even neighboring people certainly knew the name of Sisera, and they trembled at his name. And yet he is debased before God and before man because he was, in there, because he was arrogant and he was unjust. Now, we today don't really understand the extent of this humiliation. Because we live in a day and age when 
women are able to uh, do violent things like this, not that it's it's a good thing, (laughs) with much greater ease than days of past. But let me read another passage that helps us, I think, to understand the extent of this humiliation. We read in the ninth chapter of Judges. We'll be getting there eventually, but let me move ahead. The ninth chapter of Judges. We are moving into the story of the judgeship of Gideon. When Gideon passes from the scene, one of his sons emerges and attempts to to, um, take power for himself. And his name was Abimelech. And he's he's attacking those who are opposed to him. In verse 52 of chapter 9, we read these words. So Abimelech came to the tower and fought against it and approached the entrance of the tower to burn it with fire. But a certain woman threw an upper millstone on Abimelech's head, crushing his skull. Then he quickly called to the young man, his armor bearer, and said to him, Draw your sword and kill me, lest it be said of me a woman slew him. So the young man pierced him through and he died. It was a great humiliation for a warrior to be known as having been slain by a woman. And the reasons for that were many, not the least of which were that women were not considered to be equal with men in any way, shape, or form. In, in many of these societies, women were thought to be alongside the animals in terms of their importance to the culture. Not in every case, of course, but uh, in many of these uh, cultures this was true. And so for a mighty warrior to die at the hands of a woman was, was the greatest shame you could heap on, on such a person. And so that is what God is doing here. He's using the culture of the time to shame this person and to bring dishonor to him. As we read on in this chapter, 5 of Judges, the last passage says this, Out of the window she looked and lamented, the mother of Sisera through the lattice. Why does his chariot delay in coming? Why do the hoofbeats of his chariot tarry? Her wise princesses would answer her. Indeed, she repeats her words to herself. Are they not finding, are they not dividing the spoil? A maiden, two maidens for every warrior. To Sisera, a spoil of dyed work. A spoil of dyed work embroidered. Dyed work of double embroidery on the neck of the spoiler. Thus let all thine enemies perish, O Lord. But let those who love him be like the rising of the sun in its might. And the land was undisturbed for 40 years. The mighty has fallen, but his mother does not know that. But his mother's worried. We, give us, we have a little interesting perspective here. Even Sisera, you see, had a mother. And she was alive and she was concerned for her son. You know, Adolf Hitler had a mother too. He had a father. And certainly they at some point in time cared about this, this man. And so as we, we deal with the, the vile people of history, we have to realize that someone did love them. Someone did care for them. Well, hopefully, I'm sure there have been people who've been born and raised and had no one to love them. But Sisera's mother cared for him. She was worried that her son was late in returning. Uh, he should have, should have been back sooner. After all, what kind of a battle would this have been anyway? 10,000 Israelite warriors with absolutely no chariot chariots against this mighty army that Sisera led. It should have been over in a very short period of time. And and he should be back by now. 
But the ladies in waiting have great faith in Sisera and they, they uh, assuage the worry of the mother by saying, oh, he's delaying because it's taking him this much time to collect all the spoil, to get all the goodies, you know, from the battlefield and from the camp of the, uh, camp of the enemy. Now to us today, we never think of that. Uh, if, if one army overruns another army, uh, sure, some military equipment might be picked up along the way, but you don't think of picking up riches from the other army. But you go back into the days we're talking about, and it was not uncommon for armies to move with vast followings. Maybe the families of, of the leaders of the army, certainly other kinds of camp followers, and often they brought gold and silver and, and jewelry and all kinds of stuff along with them. I mean, it was like home away from home because these campaigns weren't something you did overnight. These, these campaigns could last weeks, months, even years. And, and so the whole idea here was that in attacking this Israelite army and overwhelming them, you would capture their camp and you get all the goodies that were in the camp. Well, I think even if Sisera had won, he wouldn't have found very many goodies. Because I think Barak's army had moved quickly and, and was intending for a short uh, period here and, and wasn't, you know, encumbered by all kinds of camp followers. I don't think he would have gotten much even if he had won. But this, this is what they're talking about here. The spoil. They're collecting the spoil. The dyed, the dyed fabrics. The embroidered fabrics. The, all the goodies. You know, and that mentions in there, for each warrior, a maiden or two. You know, as if there, there were all these women camp followers, you know, that were, were here too. But of course, it was not to be. I'm sure for her, when the news finally came, it was very, very tragic uh, for this lady. Of course, in the long run, uh, she and, and the whole kingdom of the Canaanites would be destroyed. Jabin would be overthrown, uh, Hatzor would be burned, and she probably would uh, at least be chased away or die possibly in the ensuing conflict. This poem comes to a great crescendo in verse 31. Thus let all thine enemies perish, O Lord, but let those who love him be like the rising of the sun in its might. I don't know if you've, I, I know you all have watched the sunrise at some point in time. And on a clear morning, when that disc begins to come over the horizon, you're just blinded by the, by the power, the glory of it. And, and this is the picture we have here. This is a, it's a great crescendo at the very end. It's like, pardon me, <laughs> it's like when the, uh, <laughs> it's a crescendo, you know. <laughs> It's like when the, when the organ piece comes to that mighty end when it's, you know, all the stops are pulled out and, you know. And that's the way this poem is, is coming to an end. And as I read that, it reminded me of a passage that uh, we know of in, in the 13th chapter of Matthew, where, where Jesus has been telling parables and the parable of the tares and the wheat. In verse 36 of Matthew 13, then he left the multitudes and went into the house. And his disciples came with him, saying, Explain to us the parable of the tares in the, of the field. And he answered and said, The one who sows the good seed is the son of man, and the field is the world. As for the good seed, these are the sons of the kingdom. The tares are the sons of the evil one. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil, and the harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are the angels. Therefore, just as the tares are gathered up and burned with fire, so it shall be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send forth his angels, and they will gather out, his, out of his kingdom all stumbling blocks and those who commit lawlessness, and will cast them into the furnace of fire. 
In that place there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. But then notice the contrast in the next verse. Then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. Notice the stark contrast between verse 42 and verse 43. For the sons of the evil one, those who have rejected Jesus Christ, will be cast into the furnace of fire. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. But in contrast, those who are the sons of the living God, the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom. How can they do that? They do that because they reflect the glory of Christ. The righteous will reflect the glory of Jesus. We become like a polished mirror, reflecting His glory that shines upon us back to the world, hopefully, and sometimes our mirror gets a little smudged, doesn't it? A little dingy with the cares of this world and with our flesh. But then will come the day when there will be nothing smudging our mirror as we stand in the kingdom of God and we will reflect the glory of Christ to one another and it will be as the light of the sun. Remember Paul when he was knocked off his donkey on the way to Damascus? He looked up and he saw the brightness of Jesus in the heavens and it said it was brighter than the noonday sun. So throughout this poem we have a, an emphasis upon the glory of God and the work that he will do and the fulfillment of his promises and the fulfillment of his prophecies and the fact that those who will exalt themselves, God will humiliate and tear down as he did Sisera. And those who stand humbly to do his will, he will exalt as he did Jael, even though she wasn't even a Hebrew. She wasn't even an Israelite. And so God be glorified in either case. And we're told in the very last phrase of this particular chapter, that the land was undisturbed for 40 years. Canaanites were gone. The evil Sisera was dead. The chariots were destroyed. And now the Israelites could travel the highways without interference and without threat or fear. And of course their response was to be living obediently to God. He had done this mighty miracle for them. He had delivered them and so they sh their whole lives should reflect the glory of God. They should be, their lives should just radiate and ooze with thanks to the God who had delivered them. And I really believe it did for a good portion of that 40 years. I think the bulk of that generation probably honored God for what he had done because they remembered so well what had happened. It's like the people today who suffered through the Holocaust and survived. It's vivid in their minds. It hasn't gone away. They would never forget, but their children have only heard about it from the parents, and it's not nearly as vivid in their minds, and so it's easier for them to forget. And so it would be for Israel. As we move into the sixth chapter of Judges, it's like, oh, brother, you know. Here it is, the pendulum's back on the other side again, but how like our daily lives or weekly lives or whatever. Hopefully we don't swing as far in our pendulum as Israel did, but let's read the first few verses of chapter 6. Then sons of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord gave them into the hands of Midian for seven years. And the power of Midian prevailed against Israel because of Midian, the sons of Israel made for themselves the dens, which were in the mountains and the caves and the strongholds. For it was when Israel had sown that the Midianites would come up with the Amalekites and the sons of the east and go against them. And they would camp against them and destroy the produce of the earth as far as Gaza. 
and leave no sustenance in Israel, as well as no sheep, ox, or donkey. For they would come up with their livestock and their tents, and they would come in like locusts for number. Both they and their camels were innumerable. And they came into the land to devastate it. So Israel was brought very low because of Midian. And the sons of Israel cried out to the Lord. I don't think there's any way for you and for me today to understand how tragic this particular passage is. For Israel to have been brought low by Cushan Rishathaim and his mighty army from the north is one thing. For Israel to be brought under the thumb of the Canaanite is another thing. But to be brought under the thumb of the Midianites and the Amalekites is intolerable. It's unthinkable. And we'll see why as we read through this chapter. After 40 years of peace, 40 years is more or less a generation, another generation arose. And they forgot the Canaanite oppression. They hadn't lived through it. And the miraculous deliverance that God gave them through Deborah and Barak. Sure, they knew of Deborah and Barak. Certainly their names had been sung around the fireside for decades. But they didn't mean anything to the new generation directly, only indirectly. So they were lured into the vile worship of their pagan neighbors. And like the previous generation and their fathers and mothers could not say, how dare you do this because we were so good. Because the fathers and mothers had been rescued from vile worship of the pagan gods by God. And so this new generation forsook the God of their fathers and chased after the Asherah and the ba Baals. But again, God steps in. And that's the story of history. God keeps stepping in. What we have a hard time understanding is when and where has God stepped in through the pages of history because most of history is not recorded in the book, the Bible. And so we can only assume or say from the circumstances it looks as if God stepped in here to bring this about. I, I think as we in retrospect look back at World War II, we can understand that it wasn't because America was so good or Britain was so good that, that God destroyed the evil power of Nazi Germany. It was because that was a kingdom that arose on the ruins of a church that had gone the way of, of modernism and had forsaken its roots for the most part, you know, higher criticism, and that this thing had arisen, but, but God used, of course, Nazis to teach maybe some of the German Christians a lesson or two, but woe to those who do not give honor to God when he gives them the opportunity to rise to power. And of course, Hitler turned his back on everything Christian and followed after everything that was satanic and glorified himself and talked about his thousand-year Reich, which lasted 12 years. And he died ignominiously. So God steps in here to turn them back from their folly. So many people interpret God wrongly. It's like if you read that... Uh, Greg O'Haver mentioned it last night at the uh, Rapture Brass concert, but if you read that commentary in the paper the other day about the Catholic Church now having uh, downgraded hell to a state of the mind more than anything else. One of the things that this person who's writing this commentary is obviously very critical of Christianity from any direction. One of the things she says is that from the old view of hell being where God takes revenge, that a vengeful God throws people into hell. 
You know, a, lot, a lot of people like to have this, this pagan view of who God is. They think he's like Kali or, or, or one of the pagan gods of Hinduism or somewhere else. This god reaches out and says, you dare strike against me, yeah, you know, kind of thing. That's not God of the Bible at all. The God of the Bible is all loving and all good, but he's just. And his justice requires that those who reject his mercy and reject the death of his son must be cast out of his presence. And because they have chosen to walk with the devil, they go where the devil has been cast. And in Revelation we're told it is into the lake of fire that burns forever. And so it's not out of vengefulness that God throws in there. God does not enjoy that one little speck. God is not willing that any should perish. And yet those that do go there because they have chosen to go there, not because a vengeful God has thrown them in there. We must view God biblically. And unfortunately, the world does not because they don't want to have to believe in the God of the Bible, so they paint him to be some kind of a monster that can't be believed or shouldn't be believed. The God of the Bible needs to be preached as a God of love, but as also a God of justice. And the two have to be put in dynamic tension. And we have to understand God from both perspectives. We can't impose upon him our human attitudes, our, our, our human uh, weaknesses and failings and emotions. Because we are a pale reflection of God. He created us in our image. I'm sorry, he created us in his image. But we have fallen so short of that imago Dei, that image of God. And, and today we are a reflection of the world and not of God as we live or as people live in this world unrepentant and unconverted they do not reflect the glory of God at all so God allowed the Midianites to subdue Israel and to oppress them that that is so humiliating not it isn't just any old body to, to us well, I, I don't want to make some kind of comparison to us because somebody might be offended, but to us it would be like, you know, some people that we consider to be hardly more than dogs coming and ruling over us. The Midianites were a nomadic people. They were, for the most part, not a settled people. They herded flocks and they lived largely in the steppe lands, of which there's a great deal in this part of the world, that part of the world. But what's interesting about them is that they are descended from Abraham as was Israel. Let's turn back to Genesis chapter 25. You remember Abraham, uh, he fathered Isaac and Ishmael, but when his wife died, he remarried. Now Abraham took another wife whose name was Keturah, and she bore him Zimram, Jokshan, Medan, Midian, Ishbak, and Shua. Abraham was not done. By this other wife, he is well over a hundred years old now. He fathers six more sons and probably some daughters that aren't even mentioned, I would suspect. So he launches this whole new generation of people. And by the way, if you were to read in, in, chapter, in verse 3, one of those sons became the father of Sheba and Dedan. And the sons of Dedan were Asherim and Lethushim, and Leumim, <laughs> these are names of peoples. And almost all these peoples were unfriendly to Israel. Sheba and Dedan became, in effect, ultimately perpetrators of the Arab race. 
the Arab race, of course, is not a pure race like, well, no race is, but I mean, they're a mixture of all these peoples. The, the leftover, probably there's Edomite blood, uh, there's Ishmaelite blood, Midianite blood, Malachite blood, all these bloods all mixed together into this greater group of people that we commonly refer to today as Arab. In fact, the word Arab has become more of a, uh, of a um, linguistic name than it has an actual ethnic name. We call Egyptians Arabs. Egyptians are not Arabs ethnically. They speak Arabic, uh, but they are Egyptians, and they have a much longer and older history than the Arabs do. And all of North Africa, we refer to all those people over there as Arabs. Well, the bulk of them are not. They are the old Bedouins of North Africa, a totally different ethnic group than the Arabs, and yet we, we kind of lump them all together here. So here we have Midian coming along. He is a distant cousin of Israel. Midians can trace his ancestry back to Abraham as Israel did. It was to the Midianites that Jacob's sons sold Joshua, uh, Joseph. And it was the Midianites that sold Joseph to Potiphar down in Egypt. The Midianites had become a great stumbling block to Israel during the wilderness wandering. Let me read a couple of verses to you from 25th chapter of Numbers. You remember the story when we were talking about Israel coming across and getting ready to enter the land. They were still over in Moab. In the 25th chapter of Numbers, beginning at verse 14, Now the name of the slain man of Israel who was slain with the Midianite woman was Zimri, the son of Salu, a leader of a father's household among the Simeonites. And the name of the Midianite woman who was slain was Kozbi, the daughter of Zur, who was head of a people of, the father's, of a father's household in Midian. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Be hostile to the Midianites and strike them. For they have been hostile to you with their tricks, with which they have deceived you in the affair of Peor, and in the affair of Cosby, the daughter of the Midian, a leader of Midian, their sister who was slain on the day of the plague because of Peor. Peor was, of course, the name commonly used for one particular form of Baal worship. And so here were the Midianites. The Midianites had, had impacted the Israelites. They were one of the last people groups to impact the Israelites before they actually came across, captured Jericho, and conquered the land. And here were the Midianites trying to seduce them into worship of the Baals which they worshipped along with the Moabites. And so they had been a great stumbling block to Israel. And God said, because of this, you are to destroy them. I don't have time to read the passage. I think I'll start next week with it. But in Numbers chapter 31, there's kind of a long passage in there, well, 11 verses long, that tells what, what Israel did in, in response to God's command. You destroy those people. Well, they, they did. But obviously, not all of them. Because now they're back, and they're back in power. And what's interesting is Matthew Henry, in his commentary in this passage, says uh, in, in uh, this passage in, in Judges, says that one of the reasons that the Midianites were able to subject Israel here to oppression was not only, of course, that God had allowed them to do so, but that they were so numerous. And yet God had said of Israel through Abraham, they were to become as the sand of the sea, as the stars of heaven. But because of their sin, their numbers had shrunk. And the enemy had expanded. And now they faced the consequences of their evil. So next week we'll, we'll pick this up and, and we'll look at what God does here on behalf of Israel in another mighty way. The mighty man Gideon, he didn't think he was.